This is an ABC podcast. If you were selling your face to be used in perpetuity, what rules would you put in place as to how it was supposed to be used? No gambling ads, no adult content. Yes, this week on Download This Show, as more and more famous people licence their image for use in deep fakes and other uses after their passing, what kinds of rules should be put in place? Plus, what next for the victims of the great big Optus hack? Elon Musk unveils a robot for some reason. And which country just declared war on floppy disks? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. It's lovely to be back. Our guest this week, our social media strategist, Meg Coffey. Welcome back to Download This Show. Hello. And he is the founder and CEO of Eugene, Kunal Kalro. Welcome back to Download This Show. Thank you. So good to be back. Good week for you guys. Bad week for Optus and <laughs> literally millions of Optus customers. Uh, by now, you, no doubt you will have seen uh, the news that there has been a massive, massive... <laughs> Uh, staggering, breathtaking, one might even say, a security breach of uh, the data of millions of Optus customers. Meg, I guess for people that haven't been up, kind of up to date, can you give me just the headlines? Like, uh, what has been taken and uh, and how many people were affected? Just the basics of it. Everything has been taken. <laughs> I'm not sure that's factually accurate, but it feels no. that way. Yeah, look, for about 10, 11 million Australians, so almost half the population, a lot of personal data has been released. Um, now, only 10,000 people apparently have had all the data. And when we say all the data, I mean past passport numbers, driver's license, Medicare cards, date of birth, phone numbers, email addresses, you know, all those kind of things that are important to your identity. Those have been released. Not all 10 to 11 million people have. But the problem is, is we don't know what actually has been. Has it been my driver's license and your passport? There, there doesn't seem to be consistency on what data for each person has been released, but there's a lot of it that's out there. And what we're seeing now for, for Optus Customers Canal is that uh, every Optus customer customers getting a different kind of email at the moment. Like, uh, you know, your driver's license was taken, a number was taken, but not your photo. So you don't need to replace it. But your passport was taken. So you probably do. So we're getting like this slow trickle out of information. Is it surprising it's sort of taken a week or two for that information to proliferate out for, for all those customers, Canal? To be honest, no, it doesn't surprise me. But I think that's just because I have like low expectations. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Uh, I think that uh, I think the issue is that they have they don't even tell their customers directly. They went through the media, and so uh, a lot of customers have just been waiting around trying to figure out if they have been impacted or not. And of course, anyone who thinks they have been impacted is going to start to chase down the passport office, which is already slammed, or the, uh, or get a new driver's license. So because of that, the follow-on impact for everyone else has actually been much worse than it needed to be if Optus had just taken the time to communicate directly with customers and be really specific about what was taken and what they needed to replace. But that's not what they did. Let's talk a little bit about that, that, that strategy, right? Um, Meg, one of the things that they just did do was they, they announced it essentially via the media. And I think the argument was that it's the fastest way of reaching the maximum amount of people. Do you think that was a sound strategy? No. Really? 
Yeah, look, I mean, I completely understand where, where that thinking was coming from, but there's a duty of care to your customers, and I think that the fact that that wasn't followed up with direct communication to the customers, that they just relied on the media to get it out, was a mistake. And the fact that they released it on a public holiday kind of makes it even worse because not everybody is in their normal routines, not necessarily watching the news or things like that. They're enjoying a public holiday. And so it it just, I think it's backfired for them because they didn't think their communication, their, their crisis comms all the way through. See, that, that's, a, that's interesting because it, I don't know that, I mean, there's no good way of doing this, right? Like there's no version of this that, that looks good, <laughs> right. right? So I was thinking about it the other day and obviously there was some criticism, Canal, of, of, of going with the, the media first strategy, but then I kind of did the maths in my head of like, well, on a public holiday, you're sort of doing the, you're sort of doing the massive, are people more likely to open up their email inbox where they get an email saying, hey, this terrible thing's happened, or are they more likely to watch the news, hear the radio? And I'm... I'm of two minds, to be honest with you, about what thing people were most likely to reach. Do you have a view? So, look, I think that, I think it made sense to an extent, but I feel like it, they chose an either or option. They went with the media option and then took multiple weeks to effectively still are waiting to respond to many customers. I think that uh, immediate follow-up to customers uh, with an email that says, "Hey, you have been impacted. This is what's been. Uh, this is what information has been impacted for you personally. This is what your next steps are." I think that that would be the most appropriate immediate next step, but that's not what happened. And so they created chaos, but they didn't follow that up with personalized communications to ensure that they manage the chaos for their customers. And I think that's the issue. The other question I have, Meg, is is why do corporations need to keep this information? Like once. Once they've got it, once they've established your identity, why do they need to hang on to this? Is there not an argument for them, you know, deleting it as soon as they've, they've proved that you are who you are, Meg? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, there's legislation around things that say you do need to keep records and, and, and you know, information for a period of time and, and every industry and, and every way is different legislation. But I think that I I agree. Once once you've been identified, once it's established that you are who you are, I don't understand why they need to keep all of the information. And I don't think that they should be. There should be a way that, you know, they only keep, you know, 10 points out of the 100 that you provided. So that way, if you do have to call in and identify yourself, there's one way that you can and not have to go through a whole re-identification process. But the fact that they're holding on to that much data and holding on to data of customers that are no longer customers, right? They have people who haven't been with them yeah. for a couple years and they're still holding on to their data. That is a, is a serious, you know, red flag and problem for me. Get, get rid of that stuff. There's got to be a safe way to destroy that information. Mm. Um, would that work, Canal? Do you reckon? I think uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, look, the number of mistakes been, uh, that that happened here are so so many. Uh, the first thing was that this isn't a sophisticated cyber attack. It was the internet internet equivalent of leaving the front door open and then people being surprised that their stuff was stolen. And of course, it wasn't Optus's stuff. It was 10 million Australian stuff that was actually stolen. And so, so that's like one big mistake. The second big mistake is just holding on to all of this data. It's not necessary. It's not needed. And as Meg said, once the identity has been established, this is just egregious overreach. They didn't need to hold this, all this information so... It is well within standard practices for a lot of companies to just reduce the risk. And, you know, this is a huge risk for companies like Optus. Reduce the risk by just holding less information that they don't need to be holding. Then there's the other side of the equation, Meg, which is, of course, the person who, well, person, people, we 
we don't know, who perpetrated uh, the actual hack in the first place, which has had its own kind of dramas <laughs> unto itself. So uh, this story is unfolding, so I'm mindful of the fact that between when we record this and when this goes to where things may change. Uh, but initially... Uh, and do correct me if I'm wrong, there was a demand of a million dollars, which is funny to me because a million dollars doesn't pay for anything because um, <laughs> I live in Sydney. Um, <laughs> and then there was like a weird apology. What is going on with the person purporting to actually have done this, Meg? Like w- w- they seem to be having a time. Yeah, sounds like a very sophisticated attack, doesn't it? Um, air quotes. Um, look, it is. It's it's laughable. I think you know. I think possible. Th- there's many things here, right? Did Optus go and pay a ransom, and they're not talking to us about it, and that's why they go, "Oh, we're so sorry. We apologize." Um, you know, the hacker saying, "We apologize. We shouldn't have done this," and you know, it was silly of us, and we're going to delete all of it. Or was this just? I mean, the person that did it eventually, or people will will be found out. That there's always a paper trail on these things. I do believe, um, and so I do think eventually we will. Find them. But, you know, maybe they were just some kids and they got in over their head. And, you know, it was a funny thing. Ooh, look at what we got. And then, oh, no, look at what we got. And what are the ramifications of that? I I don't think this is in any way a sophisticated anything. And it's, it. I agree with you, asking for a million dollars. Who asked for a million dollars? When you have that much data, that's like, <laughs> I can't even do the math, 10 cents on a person, right? Like, ask for the big money if you're going to steal this much stuff. <laughs> Why didn't they, Canal? I mean, I, I know we're, this is like very deep fictional speculation here. And we also, we, you know, there, there's been some verification of, of the data that's been put up. So it's, we're, not, we're not totally talking completely out of our rear ends here. But, but why would a, a person not ask for, for more? We're talking about an enormous amount of data that you can do a tremendous amount of damage with here. Why did this person or people only ask for such a relative, you know, relatively small amount of money oh do you think it's it's a hard question because i mean at this stage you just have to like wear your tinfoil hat and go with like the crazy (laughs) theories because that's all there is to kind of go on uh (laughs) um i mean maybe maybe they're kids like meg said right yeah i I think that the number is so small that it has to either be because there wasn't a lot of conscious thought given to it or it wasn't about the money and like, if it's not about the money, then you really have to dive into the crazy conspiracy theories. But if it was about the money, it's probably just like not a lot of conscious thought, possibly just kids. Mm. All right. Well, no doubt there'll be more on this in the coming weeks. We'll be keeping an eye on it. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, culture, and tinfoil hat work. Um, <laughs> is my name. Uh, just assume I'm wearing a tinfoil hat. I mean, I just assume I'm wearing it all the time on the show. Uh, I guess it's week. Kunal Calro, founder and CEO of Eugene, and Meg Coffey, social media strategist, who it should be said is deeply sus on social media. That's why she's doing what she does. Um, and now the greatest <laughs> mystery of our times. Uh, did Bruce Willis sell his face? Um, <laughs> this is my favourite story of the week. Yeah, I'm going to go with my favourite story. Uh, okay, so, Canal, uh, there was a story this week that uh, Bruce Willis, who um, uh, is kind of approaching a part of his career and, and he has some health issues where he's kind of stepping out of acting and there was a story that he had sold his face to an AI deep fake company. Is that right? Walk me through exactly what's mm. happened to you. 
Yeah. All right. So first things first, I guess. Deep fakes. Deep fakes. First things first. This is crazy. Second thing uh, is that uh, deep fakes use AI and machine learning tech to create realistic, super realistic videos. More often than not, it's used to create videos, uh, fake videos of celebrities and politicians. And so in this case, the news story, I suppose, is that, you know, Bruce Willis sold his face to a company called Deepcake. There has been some mixed messaging since that, since Bruce's representation, I am on first name basis, obviously, (laughs) Bruce's representation has commented that this has not been the case. That being said, there was a Russian ad that used Bruce's likeness. So there's obviously some evidence of a form of partnership. I think what's perhaps more likely to be the case is some sort of licensing arrangement. So obviously not full rights to his face, but maybe they can use his face in certain videos. It's uncertain because there's a lot of mixed messaging happening at the moment. Yeah, to say the least. Um, so, okay, so, so Meg, have we gotten to the bottom of it? Has have we have we gotten a sense of exactly what's unfolded here? Yeah, I I, I think like, like no. <clears throat> Probably not, actually. Um, look, he sold from what from what I read and the way that I do it is that there was the headline that came out that was really just a clickbait headline that was, you know, Bruce Willis sold his face. No, he didn't sell his face. He sold the ability for his likeness to be used. So as Canal said, it, it sounds like it's more of a licensing agreement and that, you know, he, he can be used in, in certain things. Uh, but it's not actually, here is my face, do with it as you please. Like, say, for example, with, you know, James Earl Jones, who's retired from acting, doesn't want to do the Star Wars anymore, he's given over the rights to his voice for that to be used for the Star Wars. They they can recreate his voice to make statements. This is not anyone can just, or Deep Cake or these companies, anyone can just use Bruce Willis as they want in AI now. It's it's a likeness licensing thing is, is my take on it. So in the end, uh, I should say that uh, the company Deep Cake have said that the, it is only the, just the rights to. But I think this actually broadens out with a, a bigger question, which is what does happen with the rights to famous people, right? So, you know, we brought up James Earl Jones. And I think, is this a worthwhile revenue source for well-known faces in the future? And I guess, Canal, if you were to put yourself in the shoes of a James Earl Jones or, or a, a Bruce Willis, what sort of strictures would you be putting in place if you if you were to license your face, your voice, your name for the future? Like what sort of things would you be putting in place if you were to do one of these agreements in the future? The way that I'm thinking about it is that it has to be values aligned, I suppose. I mean, I, I suppose I'm me, so that's kind of why I would th- say that. Uh, so if it's not values aligned, it's an issue. So if your face and likeness is being used in ways that you wouldn't necessarily want to show up as, that that would be a concern. So I would probably want to have authorization on every single item that's being produced, every single video that's being produced. I would also have limitations on where it could be used. I'd probably, you know, rule out certain industries like tobacco and so on and so forth. So there's ways, I I think those would be the things that I would be looking for to ensure that my likeness is not used in ways that I wouldn't actually, you know, show up as myself. And not only while I'm alive, like I'd be signing that for in perpetuity. So even though I'm gone, I don't want... You know, I don't want my family making a million off my likeness 
putting me in industries that I would never agree to when I was alive. So you'd have sort of content rules around it, Meg? Yeah, definitely. You know, like, you know, no porn, no tobacco, no, you know, certain things that if, if exactly what Canal said, if they're not values aligned, if, if it's not representative of me, then no, I don't ever want my likeness ever, even, you know, once I'm gone, my, my face, my voice, any of that being used for those products. And yes, I know that industries might exist in the future that don't now. Yeah, so I would that make was, sure. That was exactly what I was thinking. I was like, hold on. What about like you know, Fred Astaire selling Bitcoin, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you sign it in, you know, I, I think you have to make it, if you're going to do this, you do it and you make it very clear as to how, when, and why these things can be used. Canal, are there other things you would add to your, um, the licensing of the, the canal likeness for the future? That's a really good question. I think it would depend on if I'm still, so let's just say I'm an actor and I'm still working. I think a question for me would be whether scarcity drives my value in the market. So if I'm showing up everywhere, then does that reduce my ability to get well paid for roles that I'm currently doing? So it kind of like really becomes a question of, you know, demand versus supply. And so potentially if I'm still doing real work uh, and not retired from the industry, then I would have limitations on how often I would appear. And I mean, I think there's some really interesting opportunities as well. Uh, you know, working in tech, I'd be really interested in uh, creating almost one-on-one -on -one fan experiences, right, where individuals can reach out to people that they're fans of, uh, artists, celebrities, so on and so forth, and have those one-on-one -on -one almost chat experiences because that's all possible. And you could almost create like a likeness persona around it as well. So, oh, maybe this version of myself, this of my likeness is more chatty than me, which would be really painful for everyone else, to be honest. But, you know. Oh, uh, we love chatty canal. <laughs> I, I do like that you basically just came up with OnlyFans, though, pretty much for yourself. I was going to say OnlyFans like, are cameo, right? <laughs> you just invented OnlyFans. Well done. <laughs> uh, well, I guess OnlyFans, we'll... but AI driven, so I don't have to do any work. It's better. Is it? Is it better? <laughs> like, the number of the things you said then fill me with concerns. <laughs> but I'm going to hold those concerns myself until another day because we've got more to work through. Uh, because uh, speaking of the stuff of nightmares, uh, Elon Musk. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah, you knew we, you, we couldn't get through a show without Elon Musk. Uh, this week, the um, uber rich man behind Tesla and a bunch of other things uh, has presented a robot. It's... It's called Optimus. Uh, he announced it at a, at a big tech conference uh, in Silicon Valley. And uh, do you know what? Before we get into the ramifications of a humanoid robot, I just want to describe it. Um, so if, if you, I mean, if you, uh, you, you can't see it, right? So Meg, if you had to describe what Elon Musk's humanoid robot prototype looked like, how would you go about describing it? Clunky? <laughs> Yes. Okay. Good start. But so it, it, it kind of feels like a like a nineteen sixties or seventies image of what a, a robot looks like. It, it's, it feels very retro. Yeah. And I just, when we have all of the cool stuff that Boston Robotics does, you know, they're the ones that have the dancing dog robot. Um, I look at this Optimus thing and I go, you are 20 years late. Like it just doesn't look, it, it, it just doesn't look clunky is the only word I can describe. It just doesn't look like you would expect in 2022 when we're talking robots for it to be. It's just, it's big, it's bulky, it's, 
it's, I don't know, I don't like it. It's weird. Chrome plated. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's got no face, which I always think is a mistake on these things. Just give it a face. Just draw a smiley face on it or something. Like there's nothing creepier than a robot with no face. Anyway, separate issue. Do you know what it is? <laughs> it's it's like it's 1970s Battlestar Galactica Cylons. It's not yes. like 2000s Battlestar Galactica. You know, yes. he really, yeah, he's really like, he's gone way, way, way back. All right. So now we've got a clear image in our mind. Uh, apologies for the future nightmares. Um... Why, <laughs> like, uh, you know, Meg, you brought up Boston Dynamics, and I think um, if you haven't ever seen a Boston Dynamics video, I, I highly recommend. Um, it'll solve uh, any sleep issues you have. Um, <laughs> Boston Dynamics is a company that have made some really quite creepy videos of, of really impressive robots doing remarkable and terrifying things, and this feels like it can't do any of those things. So my question is, wh- why is Musk doing this like what is the impetus for a humanoid robot um that feels like it's a cylon from the 1970s like what is driving that because he's bored i don't know like he's just i mean it's elon why does he do anything that he does it's it's wild um look we get that he's into robotics and and technology and he is you know take away your feelings about the man and he is trying to do some really cool things with technology it just seems like he's totally missed the mark with this one and for him to come out and say you know he wants to create this robot that can do all the things that humans don't want to do so you know no more physical labor you can just get your robot to do it that's a whole other issue because you know it's it's to me it's like you know we're creating these slave robots so that we can just sit back and and reap the benefits of it i don't like it at all what i don't quite understand is like musk has like has been quite vocal canal about the dangers of artificial intelligence he's talked about being a threat to humanity how do you rationalize those two things is it possible to rationalize those things Well, I mean, I don't, but I think Musk does. So I think that from, you know, from what I can tell, like his perspective is that, yes, he does see that as a major risk. And the only way to mitigate the risk is by being in the game, because it's not like the technology is not going to get developed or is not going to be worked on. And so the best way to be able to mitigate this risk is to jump in the game yourself. The other thing as well, I'd like to kind of uh, infer from some of the uh, some of statements that Musk has made in the past is really driven by this concept of melding humanity and technology. And so, obviously, he's done other work where he's got the brain implant chip stuff going on as well in the background. And so, I think his interest is in creating a society that melds humanity and technology in a much more integrated way. And I think this is just one, you know, sort of prototype toward that. Um, yeah, does that? I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> Meg, I'll, I'll I'll flick you. Feel like same. I would have just gone on another rant That's after okay. that. <laughs> so. I mean, if you can't rant on download the show, where else are you going to do it? Uh, Meg, I'll ask you the same <laughs> question. What uh, What would you comfortably invite this robot into your life to do? See, I don't know, because like you know, I was I was thinking as you guys were talking, I was like, oh, maybe walking the dog, but I was like, I like walking the dog, and you know, doing the gardening. <laughs> I like doing the gardening. There's things that you know, not everyone likes doing the gardening. I think I think it's I don't I don't know. I don't feel. I mean, like I'd say clean my house, but I already have a house cleaner and things like that. It's for me in my life, I, I genuinely don't see how this thing could add value, uh, much less at twenty thousand dollars US. I just I, it, right now in what I'm doing, no. Hmm. 
It's not for me. Who knows? I mean, that's what I said about the iPad and when they announced that, and now my kids are addicted to it. So you never know how technology is going to infiltrate your life, do you? Yeah, true. I mean, like maybe if it could, you know, I don't know, do my work for me, but then no, I like my work. I don't know. <laughs> I don't need it. Fast forward to 2030. Uh, yeah. um, hey, inanimate uh, robot with the no face, uh, what are your thoughts on what Zuckerberg has been up to this week? <laughs> you can't replace me. <laughs> <laughs> Just lastly on the show this week, uh, Meg, has Japan declared war on floppy disks? This story is wild. Who knew that they were still using floppy disks? Like, like <laughs> it's 2022. And a floppy disk, you need, like, what, 20 of them to get even close to what you would have on a USB stick? But, yes, apparently in Japan they still use floppy disks and it is time to let them go. So around 1,900 government procedures still require businesses to use storage devices. And it's not just floppy disks, it should be said. There's also CDs and one of my favourite obsolete pieces of technology of all time, Canal, the mini disk. Um, why, why is it that, like, do we have a sense of why these pieces of technology have persisted within Japanese corporate and business life uh, and, and government life when I assume they haven't in other places, Canal? I think it's a culture of not wanting the change. <laughs> I think that's pretty much like the corporate culture around not wanting the change, which is crazy because if you think about Japan, like so they're bleeding edge on a lot of electronics, and yet there's like components of the cultural uh, of the corporate culture that just doesn't want the change. I was reading a comment of you know someone's manager had never used a computer. And like they have staff to do IT work. I'm like, I don't understand what that means. And he was like the head of cybersecurity or something, right? Like, mm. how can you have never used the, the internet when you're the head of security? I don't get it. It's crazy. It raises an interesting point for me. Um, are there other are there other pieces of obsolete technology that you kind of wish were still around? That like you have a fondness for, Meg? Oh, the VHS player. Re- for some good really? videos. Oh, um, my pager. I don't miss my pager. Well, interestingly, the, the last pager was, um, I think, was turned off in Japan in only 2019, they were saying. Yeah, because his mum or his grandmother loved using it. Oh, there you go. But, you know, the things we do to keep them happy. Um, look, I, I, I can't think of any obsolete technology that I miss. Um, there was probably some things, you know, a pager was easier than a phone or, you know, the VHS you, you, was easier. Mind you, you had to rewind things. But everything comes back. It's, it's interesting. Even tapes are coming back, apparently. Really? Oh, they, I read an article. They? Yeah. Um, for you, Canal, is there a piece of obsolete technology that, that you have a bit of fondness for? So you remember those flip phones in the early 2000s, late 90s? You know, it was in the Matrix. It's just very cool to no, no, no. The one in the, with the flip. So. The one in the Matrix was even better because it didn't flip out. There was a thing where you pressed it on the side and the top of it slid Oh, and it slid down. Oh, yes. 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 I remember yeah. it well because I went looking for it and I could not afford it. <laughs> it was 99. It was 1999 and I was poor. <laughs> but also, I mean, that's the interesting thing, though. But thanks to the bendable phones, flip phones in, in a way have kind of come back, haven't they? Yeah. I think that's true. It, not as cool. N- no, not as cool. Uh, inverse of that, uh, is, there an, is there a piece of technology now that actually, you know what? You're overdue. You need to go. You need to go right now. Fax machines. Fax machines got to go. Bye. Please. Please let's just be done with it. Hold on. Hold on. Who's asking you to fax them right now? Anybody? I work in healthcare. 
Everyone. <laughs> I was about to say doctors. <laughs> the doctors have them still. Oh. It's very sad and depressing. I have like a fax to email thing because I don't want a fax machine. But literally, that's a, that's a solution that I have to pay for. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say this might well be the most depressing note we've ever ended down the show on. <laughs> and, and we've ended this show on some pretty dystopian points. But the fax machine... <laughs> It feels like it kind of takes the cake. Uh, we are at a time. Uh, don't fax Canal Calro, the CEO and founder of Eugene. He doesn't want to hear from you, um, but he, but we do want to thank him for being on the show this week. Canal Calro, thank you so much for um, for sharing your pain around fax machines and your great <laughs> big wide knowledge around the world of media, technology and culture. Appreciate you being on the show. Thank you for having me and thanks for the therapy session. Pleasure as always. Meg Coffey, uh, social media strategist who remains a little bit sus on social media. Thanks for coming back on Download This Show. Oh, it's always a good laugh with you guys. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell. Uh, I still love mini discs. Uh, that's the hill I'm going to die on. And I'll catch you next week for another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.